I'm Todd Jones, recovering from 30 years as a sports writer. Thanks for joining me as I sit down with some of the best sports writers of our time who knew the greatest athletes and coaches and experienced firsthand some of the biggest sports moments of the past half century. We'll share stories behind the stories, some we've only told each other. Pull up a seat on Press Box Access. The words matter to Bill Livingston. They always have. The man everyone calls Livy takes pride in calling himself a writer. I've always enjoyed Livy's columns and admired his passion for the craft. It was an honor to type alongside him at many games over the years. And we're fortunate to have him on Press Box Access. Hey, Livy, thanks a lot for joining us. It's so great to talk with you again. Good to see you again, too, Todd. I don't know about that. I don't know about that. This is audio now. You don't have to see me. <laughs> that might be a good thing. Bill, 47 years in the newspaper business, 34 years at the Plain Dealer in Cleveland, and you're retired, but you're not really retired. You're still writing. You're writing a book, I hear, working on a book about Butch Reynolds, the great international track star, former Ohio State Buckeye. So you're still writing, right, Bill? Yeah, he uh, actually, he called me out of the blue in, uh, oh gosh, I guess it's October of 2019 and said it's been 30 years since the botched drug uh, situation with him that really wrecked his career and nearly wrecked his life. And he was ready to tell a story and he wanted, he said, I'd never heard this word. I'd heard, I'd heard hellacious. But he said, you wrote some hellified columns about it. Hellified. hellified. I like that. So, hellified. Uh, hell yeah. So uh, we we talked and the pandemic came and we talked some more. And uh, the book will be out sometime next year. Well, um, I'm really looking forward it, to it. You know, that. it's an advocacy book because uh, I, I truly believe he got totally hosed. Yeah. I'm. You know, it's a great story. And you're just a, you're the perfect writer to write about that because, you know, you, you cover track and field at the Olympic level. And uh, you know Butch's story inside and out, and I'm really looking forward to reading that. You've written, what is this, your fourth book now? Yeah, I actually wrote another book about field, so I covered both of them. There you go. St. Ignatius' Tim Mack won the pole vault in Athens. I wrote a book with him. Cleveland's finest. Well, the thing is, it's it's great is that even though you're retired from the newspaper industry, you're still writing. Because I think, Livy, all the years that we were in the same press box together, there's an image that sticks in my mind I used to show up at the Ohio State football games very early to try to beat the crowd. You were always there before me, and when I would walk in, you would be at your press box seat reading a good book. Right, right. And it, and I always said to myself, why didn't I bring a good book? Livy always has a good book. Phil Jackson would pass out books to his players when he coached the Lakers, most of which went unread. But I know the assistant coach when I covered the 76ers is the beat man for the Philadelphia Inquirer was Jack McMahon. Mm-hmm. And he read, and Chuck Daly read too, the, uh, later became the Pistons coach. He was the other assistant coach. And Jack said, on a flight, nothing passes the time like a good book. He's right. And, yeah, He's right. Takes you to adventures uh, in your head, you know. I mean, it's. My dad was a reader, thank God, because uh, he's the one who made me a reader. Well, I want to ask you about that because another thing, Bill, about your career, I always respected you because the words mattered. You were what I thought of as a sports writer, you know, and I think today we have sports media. But when I was getting into the business in the the mid-'80s, you know, I got in it to be a sports writer. Right. And I always loved the the guys who valued the written word, and you were one of them. Well, you just kind of grew up that way, right? I grew up in Dallas, Texas, and my dad took the Dallas Times-Herald, where Blackie Sherrod was the sport, sports columnist. And dad, my dad didn't think a game was truly over until he read what Blackie had to say about it. Right. And at the Earthquake World Series— um, the late, great Bill Millsaps, who was uh, my, one of my mentors, uh, said, let's go to eat. Uh, we'll go down to the mission. The day before the bridge fell in, before mm-hmm. uh, before the earthquake hit, uh, the series hadn't started yet. So he pulls up in front of the hotel I was staying in, and, which was not a Marriott. That's a stop the presses. Wait a minute. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I it was know. a Hyatt. <laughs> but uh, in the car were, besides Saps, Edwin Pope. Jim Murray and another guy that was, uh, you know, uh, I can't. Who was the third? Well, anyway, Edwin Pope, Jim Murray, and and oh, well, of course, Blackie. Edwin Pope, Jim Murray, and Blackie, 
And we went out to eat, and, you know, I, I had enough sense to keep my mouth shut and, and listen to the great stories by and large. But after a, a couple of uh, adult beverages or more, I told Blackie <laughs> that I took the paper when I was in college at Vanderbilt by mail and that I virtually memorized his story on the big shootout game, the 1969 Texas-Arkansas game. And he said, oh, really? And I said, old hidebound Texas yanked a seldom-used sword called, a, called the forward pass from a rusty scabbard and with it stabbed Arkansas to death yesterday. When the chips reached impossible heights, the champs went for broke, and what they broke was the back and heart of a magnificent Razorbacks challenge, which will last until these Ozark Hills have turned to gravel. And there was a stunned pause, and Murray said, I don't write them like that anymore. Wow. All these years, you still remember that. What I have, I have, from fellow Texans, I have won drinks at the bar being able to recite that. That's amazing. The next day, I called Saps and said, did I embarrass him? And he said, he loved it. Are you yeah, kidding me? Right, right. Blackie Sheridan, Ed Pope, and Jim Murray. I mean, you were hanging out with titans in the Absolutely. industry that day. Absolutely. Uh, I wanted to ask you, when you came to Cleveland in, in 1984, you're 35 years old. You're a, you're a guy from Texas. Um, how did Cleveland end up being the place that you decided, this is where I'm going to you know, spend the bulk of my career? Well, it, it became where I wanted to, where I moved because I was I was blocked at the plan, at the uh, Inquirer from getting a column. Uh, Frank Dolson and Bill Lyon were were both in their early fifties, both good columnists, different right. types. Right. Lyon was a beautiful writer. Frank was a hard edged opinion guy, mm-hmm. and they would take vacations at the same time. And so the sports editor asked me and Jason Stark, who went on to at ESPN and and won several baseball writing awards to fill in as guest columnist, and I was to do the first one. And I wrote the first one of, about in the NBA playoffs, uh, about the Seattle Supersonics. And the editor of the paper, the great Gene Roberts, who won, led the paper to several Pulitzers, mm-hmm. came down and said, uh, we're going to spike this column. We're not going to have any part-time columnists. Mm. So then I started looking. Wow. And Tom Greer, who became the editor-in-chief of the Plain Dealer, had worked on the staff and was was coming out uh, to Cleveland to be sports editor, and he told me, I want you to be my columnist out there. Now, when I think about Cleveland, you know, obviously you think the Browns, the Indians, the Cavs, but really throughout your career, you've had a chance to write a little bit of everything. Is that something that kind of kept you in this market and made a good fit for you and what you wanted to do with your writing? Well, uh, part of it, I think, was um, I got to do pretty much the primo assignments for a long time. Uh, yeah, I covered – the only thing I didn't cover in my scholarship to Grantland Rice to Vanderbilt was sponsored by the Thoroughbred Racing Association. Never covered a horse race. But then again, as Jason pointed out, those horses don't say much. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah, yeah I mean, I, I, I covered all the major sports, all the major bowls, the World Cup, all four golf majors. I did U.S. Open tennis with Navratilova and Everett and uh, uh, Borg, those people in – Figure skating, five Summer Olympics, two Winter Olympics. Went down the Olympic bobsled run. Wait a minute. You went down Norway. a bobsled run? Yes. I went over on a pre-Olympics trip, mostly with TV writers. And they told us, in, 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 the town was called uh, Hamar or something like that. Uh, that's where the bobsled run was. They told us we could, now we weren't going to run and jump into it. They had a driver and a brake man. But we could sit in the if, if you were goofy enough and signed the release, you could sit in the in the uh, sled and and someone would push you off and you'd go down the thing. And you were goofy enough. Well, I Bill Sullivan, who then was with the Houston Chronicle, has retired now. He was going to be my buddy, and I we were both pretty big boys, and uh, so we were going to generate some speed in that sucker once he yeah. got pushed off. <laughs> I but bet. I, I said to Sully, you know, I said Sully, we can. We can write about it. We can brag about it forever. I said, it's not like we're going to get a chance to do this tomorrow. And Sully said, Libby, I, I don't plan to jump out of a burning airplane tomorrow either. <laughs> but he did He did accede to it. And they told us to hold your breath, on, take a peek. And when you saw a turn coming up, hold your breath and try to hold your breath all the way. 
Well, you just couldn't do that. I mean, you know, it was just, it's the reverse of a roller coaster. Instead of feeling like you're floating, you know, you're crushed down by the G's generated in the turns. And on the last turn, I'm told we were pulling more G's than um, than the space shuttle at takeoff. Really? And I came back and uh, <laughs> Mike Johnson and, and Clay Matthews were roommates, uh, you know, kind of a ebony and ivory thing. And they said, well, there's the bobsledder. I said, I heard you might have broken a bit, a world record. <laughs> I said, well, Sully was a big boy, too. But, you know, I had a limit of 10 times to write about it in the paper. I probably have exceeded that. Well, but that's it, great. It's just something you can always talk about. You well, know? you know, you were willing to try it, right? Well, okay. I'll pass on <laughs> yeah. that one. But when you think about it, we're going to talk about some of the specific beats and, and events you covered. But in general— you know, for a boy who grew up in Dallas and loved the, the written word, when you think about the places that it's taken you through your, you know, That's decades it. in the business, when somebody says, what was it like to be a sports writer, what do you tell them? Well, it was a, it was a life I never would have dreamed of. Both of my parents were Depression-era kids. My mother didn't finish high school. My dad didn't go to college. He was a Dust Bowl Oki who went out to California and became a cop in San Francisco for a while. Mm-hmm. And, <clears throat> excuse me, my takeaway from that when I found out was, you mean I could have grown up in San Francisco and not Dallas? What were you <laughs> thinking about? But uh, it was, you know, things I, people I met, places I went. Um, I would not go out my last years and do career day things at high schools because what was I going to tell them? Mm-hmm. The business was... It left us. We didn't. We didn't leave the business. You know, yeah, it was changed so much. What would I tell them? I had a wonderful career, traveled all over the world, covered blah blah all of this stuff that I went through. But you're not going to have that. And I wasn't going to tell these kids that. Yeah, the travel is what's different, right? I mean, yeah, they used to send writers everywhere in sports, yeah. right? The newspapers were flush with cash. You know, it's how people got their news for the mm-hmm. most part. And sports writers, you know, we were fortunate. They sent us everywhere. And it was such a camaraderie, even even your rivals, you know. Um, it was just a, a, a wild ride, and you, got, you, you felt like you, you were on the inside of big events, and, you know, you could— uh, you could associate it and rub elbows with very famous people and cover glamorous events. And I didn't see too much of a downside other than how much time you were on an airplane and gone from your uh, your family. After I got married, and I've been married 43 years now. Congratulations. My uh, Your wife's a saint, My by the cousin way. said, uh, <laughs> uh, well, I think he told his wife the keys were, uh, he made pretty good money and was gone a lot. gone a lot is 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 good sometimes she did all the heavy lifting raising the kids well let's talk about some of these things that you've done in your career um like you said fortunate and you know we're going to talk a lot about cleveland because that's where the bulk of your career was but i really wanted to ask you about your time in philadelphia which started in 1973 you were there for 11 years and you covered various things there Particularly what I was interested in was the Philadelphia 76ers. Yeah. You were the beat reporter for, what, six years? Yes. Five with Dr. J, six with uh, McGinnis came one year earlier. They had been a, you know, a team that won nine games, and now they were— Yeah, 1973, right? Nine wins. Yeah, <laughs> nine. yeah. that's when I went. Th- that's when I was recruited, and I was silly enough to go so on the So they turned it around when you showed up. Is that, well, is that, well one year on high schools, and then, then we'll <laughs> give you the NBA beat. Yeah. But the NBA in the 1970s, that had to be a much different experience Absolutely. than what we think of as the NBA today yeah, yeah. in 2021. Tell us about what it was like on a day-to-day basis to be around the NBA in 19, late 1970s. Well, you could go to practice, which you can't now, and you could get a read on the players better. They, they traveled um, commercial. That's right. Know. Think about that. You could, you could go with the players. Uh, of course— you know, on seniority, uh, they would get first class. And, of course, Julius Irving got first class, even though it was his first year in the league. Right. <laughs> but uh, And the coach and the trainer sat at the back of the plane, Billy Cunningham and Al Domenico, smoking cigarettes and playing cards all the way to the coast if it came to it. That's a lot of smoke. And um, they would play uh, in, up in first class because I, I, I went up there once to ask about something. Uh, oh, I— 
I needed some ice. I'd fallen on, fallen and hurt my elbow getting to the airport. And uh, uh, they were a lot of them were sitting on the floor playing, I guess it was poker. And you could not believe the amount of cash laying on the floor, <laughs> thousands. This is in the 70s. This is not the money they made now. They were risk takers. And uh, it, was a, it was a much more uh, kind of media-friendly league and, and more characters, I think. In. But those were the days in the NBA. Yeah, anything could happen. I mean, I think even there was a time as a beat reporter, you even ended up in handcuffs. Uh, at, a, yes. at a Sixers game in San Antonio, right? Well, they were on a bad streak, and uh, before the before the three pointer, they blew a nine point lead in the last like minute and a half, and lost in double overtime. And so we're just right up against the deadline now, and everything's going to have to be scrambled and redone because it looked like a win for so much of the night, and we're all standing there sweating outside the locker room door. And the first guy I ever saw with a mini cam, you know, TV mm-hmm. guy on his shoulder comes up. And this guardian at the door in a, you know, u- uniform lets him in. And I said, you can't let him in and not let us. And he says, he's TV. And I said, Whoa. get out of the way. And I shoved him, <laughs> thinking he was a rent-a-cop. He was, in fact, a San Antonio policeman who quickly took out his handcuffs and slapped them on me. I'd, he put he put them in front of me, and it went through my head that I could still type. Uh, you know, I could still <laughs> write my story. And uh, I'm standing scribe. looking at a way trying to be inconspicuous in the inside the corridor where the near the locker room. And Billy Cunningham's coach comes out, sees me, bursts out laughing, and says, "Don't look to me to bail you out." <laughs> so. The PR guy, the other writers get the PR guy, Wayne Witt, who comes down and says, I've talked to the owner. It was Angelo Drosso. So Mr. Drosso says, take the handcuffs off him and we'll talk about it. And the cop says, I'm not making this up, Todd. I don't have the key. Like Barney Fife with his bullet, he didn't, <laughs> he didn't have a key. So they had to get a superior and uh, they take him off and um, – you know, I, I shame, ashamed, I called the plane. Well, I, I went back to the hotel after I wrote my regular game call, game story. With no cuffs on, though, right? No, no cuffs on. All right. All right. And um, sat right by the door waiting for the other writers. And as they came in, I said, did you write anything about that? And two of them, <clears throat> Weiss and uh, I guess it was Frank Brady, I don't know. Uh, he, they said, well, we called the we called the desk, and they said, were any charges filed? And we said, no. And they said, ah. And so then Heisler comes. My buddy Heisler comes in. He said, uh, <clears throat> I had to Billy Bob. He always called me Billy Bob because I was from Texas. And, you know, now my chest is, my chin is on my chest. So I I call the inquirer and kind of do a little dictation on it. And when I got home, I found that, first of all, when I got home, uh, the headline was in a box on the first page of sports with the headline, Hold That Tiger! Exclamation point. <laughs> and uh, we got into New Orleans, which was the next stop. The, the jazz was still there. And I walked into, checked into the hotel, and I sir, he said, Sir, you have a number of messages from a Mr. Pat Williams, who was the mm-hmm. general manager. Right. So I, I, you know, I had no doubt what this is about, but I called him, and he said, I got to tell you. I almost fell out of bed laughing, laughing when I read that. <laughs> I said, well, my aim is to amuse. And everything was okay until uh, my uncle took Sports Illustrated, and Sports Illustrated put in scoreboard, scorecard, mm-hmm. remember that? Yeah. About, and um, so he called and, and uh, basically informed my mother. And she calls me and says, what is this I hear about you being arrested in San Antonio? <laughs> And I said, I was not arrested, mother. I was released and I, I was released and no charges were filed. <laughs> this <laughs> failed to mollify her sufficiently. Mom wasn't happy but, with that. No, mom, mom wasn't having a lot of that either. How did this, my sports writing son end up in cuffs? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, there was quite a few characters on that team. I mean, even the writers were characters. But you think about some of the players that were on that team. George McGinnis. Henry Bibby, World Be Free, Doug Collins, of course, Dr. J. Uh, that, that, 
there's two guys. One guy I wanted to ask you about, and it, first of all, it was Caldwell Jones because he has one of my favorite lines of all time. They asked him, he said, what was your favorite seafood? And he said, saltwater taffy. Right. <laughs> But the other big guy. Well, I had I had run the stories would should be Dawkins and also McGinnis. That's right. So yeah. I, I, those are the two I wanted to ask yeah. about. Was McGinnis George McGinnis was a great great player in the seventies. Tell me a little bit about George. Well, when Doc came, uh, first of all, they lost a miniseries to the old Buffalo Braves, and George, in my estimation, in estimation, and off the record, and certainly in. Um, some of the players' estimation, uh, fouled out because he couldn't take the pressure. He just reached in and slapped John Shoemate for his fourth, for his sixth foul with about four minutes left in the game. Fred Carter probably won't admit it now, but he said, hmm. yeah, you were right. He wanted out. Hmm. Cunningham thought he wanted out. But I didn't, I didn't write that then. Uh, but the next year, Doc comes, and, and it's just obvious as a leader at practice and as a game uh, peak performer in games, Julius Irving is just better. And they were both the same type of player. The right. last guys back, except Julius was could at least block shots on defense. But the last guy back on defense had to have the ball a lot. And they weren't going very well at the time. And um, candidly, they had lost two games to, they lost in Chicago and then lost in Kansas City. We took the usual 5 a.m. wake-up call, 7 a.m. flight back through always scenic and uh, sedate and tranquil O'Hare. Glorious life. And I was right? in the I was in the middle <laughs> seat both ways, so that kind of put even an extra sharp edge on my anger. So I got home and I got into my apartment and I banged out a beat column and an analysis that said, made the same case I've said here that they were similar type players. And I drew an analogy between when it was Rick Barry and Cassie Russell with the Warriors and they were going bad, and they benched Cassie and put— and it wasn't because he went to Vanderbilt and was a god there when I— right. He was graduated when I was a senior in high school. Clyde Lee, they put Clyde Lee with Barry. Clyde could box out a boxcar, as they said, and, and <laughs> you know didn't need the ball a lot, could hit an open shot. So it was just a better fit. Right. And so I made that argument in the paper. George wasn't happy, though. George was not only unhappy, but he scored 44 points that oh. night. And so I'm, I knew I had to, that's part of the code. You don't rip a guy and run. But I was taking my time buffing my running story, you know, buffing and polishing. And the AP guy comes running back from the locker room to do his uh, quick lead. And I said, how is it in there, Ralph? Ralph Bernstein. He said, he's waiting for you. <laughs> so I go in there, and here he comes across the locker room. And George was a big man, though. George was 6'8", about 245. Yeah. And George, uh, with every other word, he would jab me in the chest. And he said, every time I read that shit you write, I just consider the fucking source. <laughs> and I'm just taking it, you know. Sometimes you just have to take it. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I come back out, and Ralph said, how'd it go? And I said, pretty rough. <laughs> 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 did you and George ever make up? I mean, did, how, did, how did really. that relationship no, go? Not really. Not really. Um, yeah. Okay. He All just right, started well. thinking I was a doc guy, which I was, right. but, you know. All right. Well, before we talk doc, the great Julius Irving, I did want to ask you about one more sixer, and that's one of my all-time favorites from afar, and that's Daryl Dawkins, the late, great Daryl Dawkins. Yeah. I want to ask you, were you ever at Lovetron? Did you ever travel no, to Lovetron? No, Chocolate Paradise. The which planet was, that he said he was from. Uh, you never went to Lovetron? Uh, well, and Chocolate Paradise was its suburb. Oh. <laughs> but <laughs> he, uh, you know, he broke two backboards. Uh, and the second one actually was one of my better leads, I thought. Uh, what was it? Remember the Ella, the Della Reese commercial? Mm -hmm. Or Ella Fitzgerald, where she right. gets high notes and the little crystal glass explodes. Yeah. Yeah. Was it Memorex or, or, or uh, Daryl Dawkins? Because they, they, then they played the Memorex tape and it, it still explodes. Right. I well, watched it. I want to ask you about this. So you're sitting courtside, right? Yeah. And a guy shatters a backboard. Daryl Dawkins right. shatters the backboard. What the hell was that like? What were you thinking? We've never seen anything like it. They put the snap down rims because of that, you know. What was the crowd's reaction? He he came up with a name. He named all his duck. Yeah. But as I best recall, it was the Bill Robinson who 
has passed too was the defender who was just basically ducking and covering like it was an atomic drill in the 50s um, in school. Uh, it was, let's see, glass flying, robinzine crying, um, rump roasting, bun toasting, uh, high flying, hard jamming, Wham, bam, I am jam. <laughs> you know, I just, the guy was just irrepressible. I mean, and he was a, Daryl was a guy who sent a lot of his money back to his family. He really was a very decent man. I mean, he went to the NBA right out of high school. Right out of high school. Right. He had a cowlick. First, only black guy I ever saw who had yeah, a cowlick. Yeah, I mean, we, we hear of guys doing that all the time now, but yeah, in yeah. the 70s, that was crazy. It was well, him and Moses. He was, he was and, not the first, but he was yeah. one of, he was. Not many. Yeah, not many. Right. Well, Dawkins, when I think of Daryl, I think of the fight in the 1977 right. NBA playoff, fin- the NBA championship, yeah. the finals. Uh, Maurice Lucas the great heavy man for the Portland Trailblazers, right. the Walton gang, and Daryl squared off in game two at the Spectrum. Right. Uh, and you were there. Uh, wasn't much of a fight, though, was it? No, and uh, pe- it was very scary because people ran out of the stands onto the floor. I, I remember a guy's, I had, you know, my box score, my little Royal typewriter. and uh, Typewriter, think about that. Uh, he, he landed, he left a sneaker print on the box score right next to where you know, my I was working, but they uh, they bobbed and weaved around for a while, and Julius tried to grab Daryl and pull him away, and um, Daryl threw a, trying to get loose, threw an elbow and popped Julius in the mouth, so Julius then went and sat down in the center jump circle with all these fans running around and everything. Doug Collins jumped in to try to stop it. He got hit by Dawkins too, a glancing blow. So then, you know, as as Doc said, I tried to stop it. Doug tried to stop it. So then it was time for Daryl to fight. <laughs> well, Daryl didn't really want any part of there. You 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 well, saw more bobbing I mean, and weaving. You know, they didn't really fight a, a lot on Love Tron. It was Love Tron. It wasn't Fight Tron. Right, right. So he went into the locker room after he was tossed from the game. Right. And uh, broke a sink off the wall. Just tore it off the wall. That's how strong he was. Uh, we walked in there to see, you know, water gushing everywhere. Um, but yeah, it was um, it was one of the more amazing things I've ever seen. It really kind of that was kind of the pardon the expression, but turn of the tide there. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Because they lost the next four. Yeah, yeah, they lost the next four to the to Bill Walton uh, Trailblazers. And, 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 and the sixth game, George finally came out of his wherever he was. Flap doodleness or whatever, and uh, they they were in the game. And uh, the best play I ever saw, well, the second best play, the best was another one. But Doc, as I said, was always one of the last guys back on defense, and he's going back. And all of a sudden, I I don't even know what happened, but there was a deflection or something, and the and the ball comes loose, and Julius picked it up just past half court, and Walton also had not come up court yet. Mm-hmm. And Doc comes in on Walton just like a like a like a hockey thing, like a like the shootout in in a hockey one on one, and goes up, and he did use his elbow to push off a little bit, but he threw it right in Walton's ear. It was just astonishing. Yeah, it's an amazing. It's on yeah, YouTube. It's yeah. amazing dunk. <laughs> Incredible. The greatest thing I ever saw him do was the reverse layup. And, yeah, and, let's talk about Doc because, you know, Julius Irving was one of those special guys. And I think the thing for me when I think about Irving is that he was right before the NBA. You know, he's right at tail end of his career is when the NBA started blowing up with Bird mm-hmm. and Magic. Mm-hmm. So for a while there, he you was heard the show. about Doc, but you didn't really get to see Julius Irving. So there was almost like a mystery about him. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. got to see him every day. What was it like? Covering Dr. J. Well, you went out there prepared, not expecting to, but prepared to possibly see something you'd never seen another human being do. It was like when Olga Corbett did some of the first things that have become routine in gymnastics. Um, The uh, reverse layup, I think he went around. You're talking about the 1980 finals against the Lakers. Yeah, yeah, game, uh, game four. He went around, I think it was... Olding. Anyway, at one point, he, he took off from the college foul lane marker on the right side of the basket, went around one guy. At, at 
one point on the replay, he was out of bounds. He swoops back in with those huge, that really rangy long arms and that enormous hands he had. Flips it up off the backboard, drops in. He lands, crashes into into Jim Jones, who was with the Lakers. They both fall to the floor. Years later, (laughs) Jones told me, so just, as I was getting up, I said to Doc, oh, come on, Doc, that's not fair. <laughs> but, uh, we got out to L.A. for game five, and it, everybody was talking about sh- that shot. And uh, I said to uh, the uh, guy when I was checking in, he said, yeah, everybody was watching it in, in the bar and on the TV in the, in the lobby. I said, what was it like when Julius hit that shot? And he said, even though it was against the Lakers, it was like New Year's Eve hmm. when the ball dropped. Yeah. It's one of the most famous shots in, in yeah. NBA history, really. Yeah. So what was Doc like on a day-to-day basis? I mean, besides the amazing player that he was, you got he, to know him, mm-hmm. covering him. What, what was one of the all-time greats, Joyce Irving, like? He was very conscious of his image, for one thing. He, um, you know, some players, when they, you never saw any, <clears throat> it was a, it was a news to us when uh, it was revealed that he had had a, he had a, daughter by a a sports columnist, uh, Samantha Stevenson, whom I had known in Dallas. You never saw him with other women on the road. Some some guys, if they had a good-looking girl on the road, they'd just promenade him through the lobby Mm. so you could, you know, be envious. Mm. Um, He was—he would fall in love with words that weren't words. (laughs) Once uh, Wicker—once, I guess it was might have been Mark Wicker, asked him how crucial this loss was, and he said— well, uh, I don't know how how you would assess the cruciality of it, and he <laughs> liked it. And he kept using cruciality, and he used it for like days it. afterwards. Yeah, I might, yeah. Be, I might start using that cruciality. One, one time, I know Fran Blindbury, who was uh, another one of the beat guys. It was, I think, the eighty election, presidential election, and he was taking a survey in the locker room, and you know, clearly, uh, you know, Carter was beating Reagan in the locker room. And he starts talking to Julius, and it was, <clears throat> he said, it soon became obvious that Julius not only had not voted, was not going to vote in person, had not voted absentee, <clears throat> and uh, had not followed any of the issues or anything like that. And he said, it got so embarrassing, he said, <clears throat> I told him, I'm not even going to write this <laughs> because <laughs> this is just unbelievable. There's no cruciality <laughs> no, here. No, there's no cruciality to it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> He also once you Doc did commercials for uh, Chapstick, and he talked about the emollients. Mm-hmm. And with a big smirk on his face, Fran said, "So what are emollients?" He didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> Fran didn't know either. But <laughs> hey, man, we're selling it. Just selling. <laughs> That's right. Moving product. Right. Well, Doc was such a great ambassador for the game. I mean, he came from the ABA, helped the transition into the the NBA, and, and again, like towards the tail end of his career, it was it was can the Sixers finally win one, mm-hmm. not just for Philly, but for Doc, and they finally got it in 83. And the the really sweet part of it was um, <clears throat> we we had a lot of the papers that took place in L.A. It was a sweep. Game four was three and four were there. Uh, a lot of the papers figured they were not going to win game four and didn't send extra people out. We sent the L.A. Bureau and mm. sent other writers from Philly. We had prearranged sidebars, and I had I had Doc. I said, I don't want the MVP. If they win, that'll be Moses. And, you know, you couldn't understand Moses anyway. But I said, I you know, it'll be such a big thing for Doc. And um, it was like he made three straight jump shots, which was rare for him, to get that, and he just got hot. And the last one was eye to eye at the top of the circle with magic, about six inches away, looking in each other's eyes. And Doc went up and shot a little fade away and swished it. And they went up like six, and there was no three then. So basically the game was over. And um, it was just so sweet that he he hit the plays that absolutely put it away, you know. And, yeah, uh, you like to see that, right? When the great ones, oh yeah, like you well, know, get like their just LeBron right? in Game Seven, you know, yeah, uh, against the against the Warriors, right? And Kyrie too, for that for that matter. Although I didn't have a lot of good things to say about Kyrie, but yeah, I mean, uh, it was just a it was a blessing to cover Doctor J. It really was. Uh, uh, how many people get to say they covered two of the five top or ten top players of all time? 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. You know, let's think about this. So you leave Philadelphia and you come to Cleveland in 84. Right. And then years later, obviously, some kid from Akron shows up with the Cavs. And falls into the lap here of a, you know, the seasoned NBA writer, columnist. You got to see Dr. J day to day, and all of a sudden you pick up this kid named LeBron James. And uh, Steve Mix and I are friends on Facebook, and he still, he he doesn't believe that I, early in LeBron's career, maybe two or three years in, he, uh, it was, might have been before Facebook, but at one point in his first stay in Cleveland, Mix said, uh, we don't think he's better than Doc, do you? And I said, yeah, yeah, I do. Mm. I said, he's bigger, he's stronger, he's a great passer. And, you know, Julius wasn't a selfish player, but, you know, Doc was up there with Bird. And, I mean, LeBron's up there with Bird and Magic as a mm-hmm. passer, creative oh, yeah. passer. Yeah. And that's how you make your teammates better. Yeah. You know, you, and it's it's how you play basketball, you know. You saw LeBron in high school, right? I did. I uh, Sophomore year. Uh, the guy who was in our Canton Akron bureau kept saying, "You got to see this kid play. You got to see this kid play." And I went down there playing uh, Central Howard, where Nate Thurman had gone to school, and it no longer exists. But but they won, and he he did some exciting things, and it was just peppered with NBA scouts and general managers at the game. It was played at Rhodes Arena at uh, at uh, the University of Akron. What was your first impression? Oh, that he was. You know, I didn't know he was going to become what he became. But a story that I, I always like to really enjoy telling was by his senior year when they were touring the country, you know. Yeah, they it was played like a Oak, circus, right? uh, Oak, Oak Hill yeah. Academy at CSU, uh, Cleveland State. And, you know, big, big prep power. And they, they won. Uh, I mean, uh, Akron, St. Saint, Saint Vincent, St. Mary won. And doing the game was Bill Walton and, uh, as analysts, Bill Walton and Vital. And I knew Walton. I, mm-hmm. I got along with Walton. Back before he even talked, I got along with him pretty well. And so I'm walking back to the press room to write my story, and I see Walton and uh, and Vital sitting out at on the court, waiting for you know to be go on camera. So I went out there and said, "You got a minute?" I didn't care what Vital said. I said, "You got a minute, Bill?" And he said, "Yeah." And I said, "So what'd you think?" And Walton says. The toughest thing to do in sports is to have a game like he had tonight to produce, to reach the peaks when everybody's expecting it, everybody's watching you. And he, you know, he was a big, Walton's a big deadhead fan, big, mm-hmm, big, right. and he knew I was a Rolling Stones fan. He says, it's just the hardest thing in the world to do when everybody expects it. Only the truly great ones can do that. I'm talking about Jerry Garcia. Mick Jagger and Bill Livingston. (laughs) Of course, it wasn't on the air, and I wasn't about to write it. But if it had been said on the air, the (laughs) serial thuds of people falling off their couches around Cleveland (laughs) would have been nice to hear. That's pretty funny. So Mm -hmm. what was your relationship with LeBron like during your career? Well, I was very just entranced by him his first day. Uh, at the time, one of the greatest things I may have ever seen was <clears throat> the year he took a team of handbags and glad, glad rags to the finals where mm-hmm. they got swept by, by uh, uh, San Antonio. Uh, he scored 48 points in a double overtime game at, at Detroit to get them home, field, home court advantage. It was game four and then they, uh, game five. And they closed them out in game six back at uh, then the Q, it was called. And not only did he score 48 points, he scored their last tw- he scored all 18 in the two overtimes. He scored all 25. He scored the last 25 and 29 of their last 30. He hit the winning shot. Uh, he was just he was exhausted. I mean, he, he I think he had a double hernia. I think from as, carrying him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
And, uh, you know, I had never seen anything like it. And, uh, you know, so I was, I was extremely, you know, I called it the, I compared it to when Bob Pettit had 55 points and the Hawks knocked out uh, uh, Boston, the one, the one of the years that Russell's teams didn't win it. And some other, you know, inside basketball, great games. But I know, you know, the Pistons were such a great defensive team. And I think uh, Flip got fired because he didn't double team him. And it was just incredible. Mm-hmm. Why would you let him have the ball? Oh, and a sidebar to this is uh, remember Sasha Pavlovich? Mm-hmm. Okay, well, he uh, went over four in one of the overtimes. And here's LeBron, you know, just sizzling hot. And they're walking to the—it's uh, a timeout. And they're walking right past the press table. And uh, Danielle Marshall turns to Sasha and says, What the hell are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> good question. Yeah. Very good question. So you were in trance with LeBron, you know, early on as everybody was. And then LeBron makes the decision— and you weren't shy about being critical of him, too. No, I mean, that's, I, I, that's I, I, one I thing I always him. respected was that, I mean, you weren't you weren't just going to coddle to whoever was, you know, the man in the spotlight. Right. And uh, so you were you were critical. What was your relationship like at a time when he left? Uh, well, it became uh, very antagonistic. I mean, I wrote a, you know, we one of the one of the ad campaigns one season was witness, you know, witness the great. LeBron and all this, and there, you know, all its biblical incl- uh, references or subtext. And so I wrote a column about Quitness Day. Mm. And uh, it wasn't, you couldn't quit something that was good, like that was bad for you, like smoking. But it was like, you know, on Quitness Day, you should go to the grocery store and, and fill your basket up three fourths full and then just leave it. You should mow half your lawn and just bag it, you know, and it had some other stuff like that. And I, one time I wrote a little uh, – uh, Wrote they were going to the finals. Everybody thought they were going to play the Lakers in the in the finals, and Orlando beat them and beat the Cavs instead. And Nike already had these commercials of Mannequin, LeBron, and Kobe, you know, and they were mm-hmm. talking. Mm-hmm. And one right, of them, right. they were sitting uh, – so I, I wrote a little doggerel poem about – I don't really remember how it went, but it was something like the little king sat on a, on a tuffet – uh, but anyway, I, at the end, I said he could stuff it or something yeah. like that. And it was kind of puerile, but, uh, you know, there was real bitterness toward him because he was a, he was from just down the road and no, no one felt that he would do that to, you know, a Cleveland team or an Ohio team. He, he was a big Ohio state fan and was just kind of, um, God in Akron. And, you know, when he came back. I respected that he wanted to make amends. He knew he had made a mistake. And, you know, if he was willing to let go of the grudge, I I certainly needed him more than he needed me. I I wrote a column that it was, you know, not a time to hold on to old grudges. And I I came to not only like him, but to really respect him because he spoke out on social issues and uh, social injustice. And, you know, Jordan was famous for saying Republicans by sneakers too. Yeah, Michael was selling shoes. Yeah, he and, was yeah, and uh yeah. I came to have a great deal of admiration for him and and to uh get along with him pretty well. And you know, so LeBron comes back to Cleveland. Yeah. And he gets it for you know, he gets that championship for Northeast Ohio. And so I think that's the thing that I think about when I think about LeBron. Mm-hmm. And you were here all those years. Mm-hmm. You came in 84. You experienced the shot with the Cavs, Michael Jordan and the Cavs. You experienced the fumble and the drive at the Browns. Well, the Cavs had just been not even on the on the radar screen until LeBron came because yeah. they'd had a serious flirtation with with it with the Price and Doherty teams, yeah, and, those were and, good teams. and with the Miracle yeah. of Richfield team. Right. But that's you know generations in the past by then. Right. Yeah. But but and then the Indians had their heartache, so you knew the heartache. So when yeah. LeBron finally delivered oh, for yeah. the city. You knew what the context was. Well, I knew it meant, uh, I knew it was just a release, uh, maybe relief as much as joy for the a lot of people. But the one that, the only time I ever almost cried at an event was uh, when the Indians won the pennant. They didn't win the World Series in 1995. 
They beat Randy Johnson in game six up in the Kingdome. Nobody thought they would beat Johnson. He was an incredible pitcher. And I got to, you know, I went down to the locker room, and I and they were geysers of champagne. They were shooting mm-hmm. champagne at Dick Jacobs, the owner. And I, I got to thinking about the boat accident the year before that had, you know, killed, just totally sank the season, killed two players. Yeah, March of 93, Steve Olin and Tim Cruz were killed and Bob Ahita injured. Yeah, almost killed another. Mm. And uh, and I got to thinking about how much it meant to the people back home in Cleveland and that, you know, for for 41 years they had been a joke. They were out of the pennant race from 1959 until 1995, mostly. They were out of the pennant race by the 4th of July, you know, if, if not Memorial Day. And I had to walk out into the corridor and kind of composed myself because I was about to start crying. Mm. And then I went back in and wrote down what I saw and went back and wrote it. But that's the only time I ever felt that way. When you think about all those years in Cleveland, um, writing for such a passionate fan base, you know, obviously the Browns and the Indians and the Cavs. Well, I'll tell you, when the Browns came back and I quickly saw what a what a mess it was going to be, mm-hmm. uh, I had already in the interim— uh, lobbied my way into doing every Ohio State game. And even though there are no home games, really and truly, lots of those years, I didn't have to be part of that mess and write the, the same Browns, story yeah. week after week. Yeah. I was writing the same story at Ohio State, too. But those winning. were happy stories. That's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> you know? a, a little different. Plus, I, I was a big Texas fan as a kid, and I'd covered Penn State for three years when I was at the Enquirer. You know, I was very used to colossal, successful, sordid major college football. Mm-hmm. And the Ohio State coach was Jim Trussell, who was right. from Northeast Ohio. Right. So you had a local angle, and they have always had a lot of players right. coming from the Cleveland area. Well, and uh, I have a, per- a personal thing that uh, the guy who uh, kind of recruited me for the school paper, Chuck Offenberger, who was— uh, he did the Iowa Boy column at the Des Moines Register for years, one of the most beloved people in the state— he was uh, fighting cancer and had received stem cell transplants uh, at the University of Iowa Medical Center, which was right across the street from, from Kinnick Stadium. And uh, I, I sent Trestle an, an email and explained our relationship with my relationship with Chuck. Mm-hmm. And I said, is there any way you could just, you know, get a piece of memorabilia or something and sign it? I'll be happy to pay for it. I'd just like to give it to Chuck. So I had to come back down for the Monday press conference because Iowa was going to be a big game that year. And he came in and stuffed it under, my, stuffed a bag under my chair. I didn't look at it till I, you know, put it in the car and I was going home. And it was an Ohio State baseball cap. And on the bill he had written, Chuck, the Buckeyes are cheering for you, hmm. which was nice. And I gave it to Chuck. And I understand he still keeps it by his home computer and enjoys people saying, why, you, why in the world do you have that Ohio State cap? Hmm. But he, he uh, called me before kickoff, and he said, I've got to tell you, this uh, Ohio State cap is creating a furor on the floor. <laughs> so the head nurse came over and said, do you understand that we're playing those people in a couple hours? <laughs> and his wife, Carla, who passed away recently, was there. And she said, does it say the Hawkeyes are cheering for you? <laughs> <laughs> so I never forgot that with Trestle, and uh, I know I knew he couldn't overcome lying to the NCAA. But but you know I'll always have a higher opinion of him than many of my peers do. Well, Trestle understood what it meant to people, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think Absolutely. from my perspective, the sports scene in Cleveland really changed with the Indians in the nineties. Yeah, with Jacobs Field. You know, that place was just rocking and rolling. Yeah. And, it, and they it, had that great offense. I mean, mm-hmm. those guys were just massive. Yeah, they scored a thousand runs. Yeah. And yeah. that was such a fun team to be around and cover. And, um, you know, I think the flip side is that the Browns didn't get their stadium and ended up leaving. Right. So you had like that, that, uh, that counterbalance of emotion, like, you know, this, the, the right. depression, the hatred of the Browns leaving. And on the other side, you had the Indians lifting up the downtown and the city. And I just think there's a lot there to write about, right? Right. And, um, you know, again, the um, I never really trusted Modell. And I I, uh, 
had a very scornful view of some of the older columnists who took his word as gold, you know. Uh, I was right about him. Um, You're talking Art Modell, the Cleveland Browns owner, yeah. who moved the team to Baltimore. Right, yeah. right. And and lied about it all the way. And, uh, you know, when he uh, when he died, I, uh, I actually took it nicer than people thought I would. Uh, I, I remembered when they lost the second of their three games with Denver to go to the mm-hmm. Super Bowl when Biner fumbled at the goal right. line after playing this magnificent game. They're not even – they're not in the game at all without Biner making so many plays. Right. And um, I finished my quick column, and I get down there, and I'd already, I'd already sent my story, so my column. I didn't have to run back with quotes like Tony Grossi mm-hmm. and the beat guys did. So Biner still hasn't come out. And uh, I waited around, and he, he we, Biner didn't want to talk, but he came out with a towel around his waist, and Modell said, Ernest, come here. And he came over, and he put his arms around him, and he hugged him. And I thought that was one of the most generous things I've seen in the absolute devastating heartbreak of defeat mm. to do for an employee-slash-athlete. I was really impressed by that, and I wrote about that. Mm-hmm. And was pilloried for it by the readers, you know. How come? Because they didn't want anything nice to be said about Modell. They wanted to celebrate that he died. Hmm. I can I can understand if you get that embittered. Well, you know, when you're a columnist like that in a big, passionate city, you know, you're, you're going to get your slings and arrows if you if you if you're doing your job. I what was your said that. what was how did you do your job? What was your approach to being a columnist in Cleveland all those years? Well, I usually, I usually tried to have an idea when I went to a game. I wasn't, you know, wedded to it. But if I was going out to an Indians game, and maybe a pitcher had been, or you know, especially if it was Omar, who was my favorite player, if he'd been going hot, I had some lines already about right. him, and I was hoping it'd work out. And sometimes I could still keep it anyway. But I, I had some kind of a, I, I had an angle I wanted to take. Now, sometimes it all just you turned on you and, you know, those late night games when you're just, you know, trying to band-aid and patch way, patch your way to the finish. Uh, but I, I tried to, I tried not to go out there with just an empty head because you, th- then you're writing a game story, mm-hmm. you know, and a column is supposed to have a take, supposed mm-hmm. to have an angle. Mm-hmm. Um, Urban's first year, they beat Indiana 52 to 49. And they had been ahead 52 to 34. And uh, the beat guy, Doug Marie's, he's already down on the field to get the quick coats. And Indiana scores, kicks the extra point. It's 52-41. They um, recover the onside kick, score again, go for two. It's 52-49 now. There's still like 40 seconds or so left. And I, it's too late to fix it. I've got to, you know, I can put in one thing that they hung on. I'm standing there, frozen, <laughs> standing up, frozen in absolute fear. And uh, they overloaded to the right, kicked a, a bloop onside kick to the other side. They really had out st- Ohio State outmanned on that side, but I've forgotten who it is, who it was. But some Buckeye fell on it and didn't have it squirt out from under him, and I just – Breathe a sigh of relief, right? Thank God. It was always you're rooting for your column. What's best for me right now? Well, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, you do root for the column. Um, You know, basically, as as we joked, but to some extent it's true, on deadline it's all about us. (laughs) (laughs) What's good for me? (laughs) You think about all those years, all the places— when somebody says, what was your career like, what do, what do you tell them? Oh, it was things I never imagined. Uh, you know, uh, as, a, as a guy who likes track and field and, and also uh, the Olympics to some extent, not the Winter Olympics so much. I don't know much about hockey. It wasn't much pond ice in Texas. Um, when I went to the ancient Olympia for the shot put mm-hmm. um, and went out and saw the obelisk uh, – you know, that says in French, here lies the heart of Baron Pierre de Copertin. That was probably the, that was the neatest trip I ever made on the company money. It was five hours each way on a bus, and Greece was seven hours ahead of us. And I I was writing, finishing it off at four in the morning in Greece because everything had to be done in by nine here. 
for the Olympic package. So, you know, at 4 a.m., it's tough to be at your best. But I wrote a good one that day because it was just so special to me. That was one of my great highlights. Yeah, when you think about it, you took the reader with you there. That's what you try to do. Right. You got on that bus and you went those five hours and you painted a scene to put the reader who wasn't fortunate enough to be there. What was it like to be there? We sat on a dirt hillside like they did back in in the ancient world, you know. And um, I remember a mutual friend of ours, Mike Lopresti, and I, we were so tired. Mike had a, a pillow he had with him to sleep on the bus. And I didn't, wasn't smart enough to bring one. And he had been laying in the, he was on it and he was about to fall asleep. And I said, Mike, wake up. They're going to, they're about to have the men, the, you know, whoever the final, the leaders were. I said, about to, about to shut, throw. And he gets up and when it's over, he's just got dirt all over him and dirt in his, in his uh, pillow and everything. And somebody said, what do you got there, little Presty? And he said, he dusted, he dumps more dust off into his, into the sack of his pillow, you know, the pillowcase inside it. And he said, just sorting out my souvenirs. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we all pick up a lot of those uh, over the years, right? And it's like small moments, small yeah. anecdotes. Yeah. And I think that's, uh, you know, what the writers that we're speaking with, that's the treasure trove that we're capturing is that. Sure, yeah. It, these little anecdotes, these things that these memories that people have, um, because all those years you were putting the reader there with you, you know. Whether, well, I tried to, and, um, yeah. you know, it was, I was very competitive, but I I also had a lot of res- respect for uh, almost everybody else who did that, you know, because city side and you know they they had a different task obviously but the night of the mayoral or, or presidential election they had send out for pizza and be telling war stories about the deadly <laughs> every night was election night in the Cavs playoffs you know or the Indians World Series right. they had no more day games in the World Series you know right. uh, and knowing how much how much pressure we we were under um, my best man in, in my wedding, uh, our wedding, uh, he said, well, all those, all those days of, uh, writing, uh, term papers the night before Vanderbilt paid off, huh? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Right. Right. He also said, I can't believe the guy who panicked and saw campus cops coming and threw a six-pack of beer, some cans still open, into a mailbox is being honored by the school. <laughs> but they, they didn't right. know it at the time, Scotty. No, I mean, no. <laughs> well, Bill, they should be proud of you down there in Vanderbilt. You've had quite the career. and, and I've been very—I was honored to go into their Student Media Hall of Fame and yeah. also uh, the Cleveland Press Club Press Hall Club, of Fame. Press Club Hall yeah, of Fame here in yeah. Cleveland. And, you know, again, Dallas, Philadelphia— Cleveland for three decades. It's been a long, 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 strange trip, as Bill Walton would say. <laughs> well, Livy, it's been a great time just catching up and, and covering so many different things in your career. It's uh, It's been a real honor, and I always enjoyed talking with you on on the road and at different games, and we, we got to cover a lot of events together. It's been fun uh, reminiscing. Newspaper people are the best. Best conversationalist, right? Yeah, right? Have about as much relevance as a buggy whip factory these days. <laughs> That's why we're talking to each other now. <laughs> <laughs> Precisely. All right, Livy. Thanks a lot. I really thanks enjoyed this. Me, All right. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Pressbox Access. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcast or on your favorite podcast app. We'd love for you to review us. Five stars would be nice. Follow us on social media. Drop us an email at pressboxaccess.com and be sure to spread the word. Everyone is welcomed here. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to executive producers Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando, producer Bill Hoffman, and our audio engineer Dave Douglas. I'm your host, Todd Jones. It's closing time. Rock on. Sports stars. They're like superheroes. But they're actually real. Which is why we've made a podcast about them. You see... 
They've all got a story. But too many of these stories were cut short. Colby Bryant. Payne Stewart. Flo Jo. Phil Hughes. Justin Fashionew. We're writing episodes about all of them. And sadly, many more. Death of a Sports Star, a new series from Crowd Network.